Uh, well, no, now I'll talk. And I want to talk about uh, a Zen story, a koan. Here's the story. Every day, uh, Zen master Rayon would call to himself, Master, Master. And uh, every day he would answer himself, Yes, yes. <laughs> then he would say to himself, Be awake, be alert. And he would answer himself, Yes, I will be. And then he would say to himself, uh, From now on, don't be fooled by anything. And he would answer himself, Okay, I won't be. <laughs> so that's the story. <laughs> and I really like this uh, story. There's a lot of wonderful stories in Zen, and, and this is one of my, one of my favorites, uh, because it is so simple and so uh, straightforward. And, and when you think about it for a minute, so useful. And uh, I, I've used this as a practice myself, and, and I would recommend it to you. Uh, anytime, uh, whether you're meditating or not meditating, anytime during your day, try, try calling out to yourself. John, Mary, Sally, George, Norman. And then uh, answer yourself. Okay, here I am. I'm here. I'm paying attention. So this is, uh, I mean, it would probably never occur to us to, to do this. But if you actually do it, it it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to just sort of stop what you're doing and return to yourself, feel yourself, and, and say to yourself, I'm here, here I am. Collecting yourself. Recollecting yourself. Recalling yourself with your own voice from whatever it is you've been lost in. Returning with a fuller presence to, to where you are. Coming home to the reality that uh, you are alive. Whatever else you think is going on, whatever problems you think you have, whatever troubles there may be, you're alive. And, and this is immense. And when you call yourself and answer yourself, you, you bring yourself back to that. And then you can remind yourself, be alert, be aware, pay attention, because maybe you weren't paying attention. And then you can answer yourself, Eagerly, okay, all right. That's right, I forgot. I'm going to pay attention right now. And you can tell yourself, it's so easy to be fooled by things. Don't be fooled. Right. I won't be. So this sort of thing is... Uh, really typical of a Zen way of practice. Because Zen is such a simple practice. Uh, it's, it's a stripped-down version of Buddhism, a pared-down version of Buddhism. And its methods are imaginative and very flexible. And though its forms might look from the outside uh, fairly elaborate and ritualized, the inner spirit of the practice is, is wide open and really creative. Sometimes I think of Zen as, as Buddhism in slang. <laughs> slang Buddhism. It reduces with uh, ease and humor the very elaborate and detailed high culture that Buddhism is into a simple and pithy way of practice that's streetwise and without pretense. And in fact, if you study the history of Chinese literature, you find that the use of slang 
puns and low-class jokes was one of the great innovations of Zen <laughs> literature into the stream of Chinese literature. So this little uh, funny story of Master uh, Rian is, is very much in the Zen spirit. Because that's all there is to it, really, to just return to yourself all the time with the spirit of, yes, here I am. This is it. Cutting through all of our complications and pretensions. And and all of Buddhism is, is right there. That's all of Buddhism that you ever would need. Everything else is window dressing. They say that uh, Master Rayan actually did practice this way. Uh, Every time he sat down to meditate, that's what he did. So I can imagine him sitting up straight, lengthening his spine, stretching up the top of his head toward the ceiling, finding his breath strong in the pit of his belly, feeling his body grounded and supported by the earth, settling himself, and then just starting out by calling himself and answering himself, being present with himself, with a strong alertness and intelligence. This kind of intent emphasis on just being here with a sense of inquiry and power and absolute readiness for whatever happens, assuming nothing, releasing everything, and all the time asking deeply, where am I? What am I? What is this? Until the whole world crystallizes into this very moment of your being alive, this very moment of consciousness. This is, this is the basic way of Zen the radical dwelling within the present moment as the only moment, the eternal moment, the ineffable moment. So that was Master Rayon's practice. And and that's the same practice that we do in Zen uh, to this day. They also say that Master Rayon would practice this way in public, When it was time for him to give a talk, he would get up on the high seat. If he was here at Spirit Rock tonight, he would come up and sit on this platform here. And he would start out by saying, Master, Master. And then he would say, Yes, here I am. And go through this whole thing. That would be his Dharma talk. It was always a little play. It was the same little play that he would enact every time he gave a talk. That's That's what they say anyway. which would not be uh, that unusual in Zen to do something like that because uh, a Zen talk shouldn't be the usual kind of talk. Its purpose is not to teach you anything, tell you anything, or inspire you. (laughs) In fact, uh, in Zen, they don't usually call it... Traditionally, it's not called a talk. It's called... uh, Presenting the shout. <laughs> Teisho, presenting the shout. In other words, demonstrating beyond the words the teaching rather than explaining it. So a Zen talk is more like a ritual or a play than it is like a lecture. So maybe Master Rayon had that way of doing it. Maybe he just actually did that every time. Maybe his lectures were about five minutes long. Master, Master, yes, don't be fooled by anything. Okay, gone. (laughs) Uh, As a person who gives talks, I think to myself, this would be good. You would really reduce your preparation time quite a bit. Very efficient. (laughs) Especially if you did the same thing every time, it would be really good. 
So I, I wonder whether he really did do that every time. I, I think it's possible. Uh, but I also know that uh, I've studied these Zen stories quite a bit, and there's a certain characteristic of exaggeration that seems to be <laughs> present in them. After all, these stories are, are really uh, myths. And if you trace some of the stories, you know, they first appeared in biographies of great teachers, and then they were collected in sort of collections of anecdotes, and then taken from those collections into other collections. And every time a story moved from one literary form to another, it got a little more simple and refined and drastic, more dramatic each time it moved. So I would guess that Master Rayan really did do that sometimes, but I'll bet you anything that he also sometimes said other things. That's my, my best guess. But no doubt... Uh, the people who practiced with him heard about this practice that he gave uh, and that was repeated many, many times. And I'm sure that around Rayon's monastery, people were calling to themselves right and left. It was a very common practice. So this is all good, but then uh, if you think about it a little bit more, you ask yourself, now wait a minute. Who is calling who? Who is calling who? Of course, at first, you know, it's funny, and we think, oh, yeah, well, he's just... Master Rayon is calling Master Rayon, just like you would call yourself. You only have one self, so... The same self calls, the same self answers. But that wouldn't really be true uh, with ourselves, never mind Master Rayon. We think of ourselves as being a fairly reasonable and organized person, but you don't have to sit in meditation very long to realize that that isn't really so. (laughs) Who, Who is this person sitting on the cushion? Or who are these people? Who's this crowd of people sitting here on my cushion? Who, who we are is not such a simple matter, it turns out. And, and that itself is a wonderful Zen koan, to sit with the koan. Who is sitting on this cushion? Who is it, actually? an old and very fruitful koan. Is is it the body sitting here? Is that who I am? Am I this body? No? Maybe I'm this mind, this heart? No? Maybe I'm my history, my habits, my dreams, my aspirations, my vows, my relationships. And what about when all of that is gone? Then who? Who is it? The story is told of one of Master Rayon's students who went to another master, Master Gensha, for instruction. And Gensha said, you know, where did you come from and wherever you were practicing, how did they practice there? And so the monk told him all about Master Rayon and Master Rayon's practice of calling and answering. And so Gensha said to the monk, well, that sounds like a very good way of practice. How come you didn't stay there? And the monk said, well, Master Rayon has died. And Gensha said, and if you called out to him now, uh, would he answer? An open question, I think. So the point is that the person who's calling out and the person who's answering may not be the people that we at first might have imagined. This is such an important point. If you call out to yourself deeply and truly, who calls? And if you answer yourself honestly, who answers? And maybe knowing the answer to that question or those questions is maybe the only really important point. 
uh, in spiritual practice. It reminds me a little bit, uh, in Zen, you know, all the stories of Buddha are rewritten, you know. And in Zen, uh, Buddha, uh, when he's born, right right when he's born, he, he leaps out of his mother's womb, points up to the heaven and down to the earth, and being an exceptional child, he could talk. <laughs> and he says, uh, in the heavens above and down in the earth below, I alone am the world-honored one. This is what the Buddha says when he's born. Now, the Buddha is not being an egomaniac here. He is like Walt Whitman in Leaves of Grass, telling us that his me, the person who he thinks he is, is not just the conventional social designation, the child of his parents, the person of his time and place. The me, the I, who Buddha comes to see, is all-inclusive, indefinable, inconceivable. If I can understand myself in this way, I'm going to have a really different viewpoint on my various problems and human challenges. I may still have those, but they're not going to matter to me in the same way if I know that I alone am the world-honored one. Because I'll realize that all my problems are rooted in the limitation that I have all my life insisted in imposing on myself, shrinking down my unbelievable vastness to this body with two eyes and nose and ears and a robe. And what's really marvelous is when that vastness, when that indefinable, inconceivable aspect of the universe decides to appear where I'm sitting, the only way it can appear is like this. That's the only way that it can appear here. The only way the universe can manifest itself where you're sitting is through you, through your body, through your life, through your disasters and joys and problems. Every life, every moment of every life includes exactly everything without limit. Every moment of every life, every life in every place is alone the world-honored one. So when you think of this, this calling and answering of Master Rewan becomes more and more interesting. So the Master calls and the Master answers, but is it the same one who answers as the one who calls? Who is the Master? The Master is the unnameable, immeasurable vastness. And at the same time, it is an ordinary Tang Dynasty Chinese Zen monk named Riyan, who was born, grew up, ate meals, practiced meditation, gave funny Dharma talks, and perished. And, and it's just the same for us. And, and, and how often we forget the actual nature of what we are. About a billion times a day we forget, about that many times. So that, uh, you know, real spiritual practice is not complicated. It's not a mystery. It's not difficult. It's just a matter of remembering to practice, remembering who we actually are all the time. And Master Raywan's way of reminding himself of who he was 
and who was actually in charge of his life was pretty effective, I think. So you ought to try it. As you're driving home tonight, ask your, call out to yourself and ask yourself if you're paying attention and answer yourself. You know, in, in Zen, even though Zen actually means meditation, in Zen, uh, it's not really so much about meditation. It's always about how is living in your life being now. So, in Zen, we don't think of practice as meditation. We think of practice as living, every moment of living. And we forget that, so we have to remind ourselves. We need a lot of reminders. It's an intimate training of the body and the mind and the spirit to remember who we are and where we are so that we can transform our lives, lift up our lives, so to speak, lift them up to the level of dignity and reality that they deserve and that they need. And it's lack of that lifting up that ultimately makes us feel dissatisfied in our living and running around looking for something that we think we don't have. The kind of running around in dissatisfaction that makes us suffer a lot and that makes our friends and relations suffer because we're suffering. So in in Zen monastic life, almost every daily action is considered a spiritual practice. One way of looking at it is to say that we use the power of the human imagination to lift up every action so that every action becomes not a mundane action of the world, but every action becomes a cosmic act. We know, of course, that it's an ordinary action. We're not pretending. But at the same time, we know that it's a cosmic action, and we lift it up to that level. And by cosmic, I don't mean somewhere in the sky. By cosmic, I mean very simply resistant to definition. That's what I mean by cosmic. Because we have a lot of definitions of ourselves and of who we think we are and what we think we're doing. And those definitions inevitably shrink us down, make us small. We have a powerful habit of defining and conceptualizing our lives until they become so confining that we become really unhappy people. And we are all already, without doing anything, so much more than that. Our real lives are not definable, are not encompassed by our definitions. So, we have practices like in the monastery, when you take a bath, you make prostrations at the altar in front of the bathhouse, and you recite a verse that basically says, now that I'm going in the bath to wash my body, what I'm really doing is washing the entire universe. I'm purifying the entire world now that I'm taking the bath. So that when I leave this bathhouse, the entire world will be cleansed and new. When we brush our teeth, we recite a verse that uh, imagines that the reason why we're brushing our teeth, the point of brushing our teeth, is to make them really strong so that we can gnash down all delusion and all confusion in the entire universe. That's the point. That's why we brush our teeth. There's a verse for that. When we eat our meals, uh, we say, you know, we're not just, we, we, another verse says, we're not just eating this food because it tastes good or even, even for our own sustenance. We're eating it uh, for Dharma and for the saving of all sentient beings and out of gratitude for all that's been given to us in this life to be here at all. And for our ancestors from the past who've given us the teachings for all that, we dedicate this food. And also, we're, we're offering it to those who are hungry. All of that is imagined as the actual act of eating. 
which, if you think about it for more than a few minutes, it actually is that. One of my favorite practices is the use of doorways, entrances, and thresholds as a spiritual practice. And, and you may know that in Zen temples, there's a whole very specific practice about how you enter into the room, with what foot and so forth. So that when you enter the room, you, you know you're entering a sacred space. The word threshold is actually an interesting word. It comes from the word thresh, like to thresh grain. Threshing grain is a kind of magic trick. You take something that is uh, not edible, and through the act of threshing, you create precious food. And often, threshing uh, in ancient times was done by treading on the grain. So the word tread became related to the word thresh. And so that's the, the threshold is therefore the stone that you tread on when you enter into the house. And that threshold in ancient times was always a sacred space that marked, a, you know, in, uh, that marked entering something sacred. And that's why you carry the bride over the threshold. It's really this sacred act. And in some cultures, the bones of the ancestors were actually buried under the threshold. And and you see this practice uh, not quite under the threshold, but in churches. If you go to Europe, a lot of churches have under the stones in the church the bones of the saints. So when you entered a room crossing the threshold, you were entering a transformative space. You were passing over a sacred marker every time you walked in. And you know, if you think about this for a minute or two, it's actually true. Every time you enter or leave a space, it's as if you're starting life all over again. You do not know what will happen inside the next space that you enter or outside the space you're leaving. You really are crossing over to a new world. You really are, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, you really are letting go of everything that was there in this space and crossing over into a fresh space. So this would be good, to pause every time. Imagine the spiritual practice of Pausing, if not physically in your heart, every time you entered or left a space, starting tonight when you walk out of here, see if you can remember, to walk out of here, just noting you're leaving this sacred space and you're entering another world. And your life will be different for having been here, and who knows what will happen next. So I I try to practice that every time I enter or leave a physical space, a room, leaving, entering or leaving, I don't always remember, but I try to practice it whenever I think of it, and and it's a lot of the time. Imagine that every time you entered or left a room, it was a deep and profound moment of meditation practice. And, you know, it's uh, soon to be uh, the Jewish New Year, the High Holidays. So, Happy New Year to all of those in the room who observe this or are aware of this. And Happy New Year to the rest of you, too. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it occurs to me that uh, this uh, practice of doorways and thresholds and entrances is highly developed in the Jewish tradition. There's a little uh, box called a mezuzah. Some of you know this. That's affixed to the entrance of every home, and in some homes, every room. And inside that little box, if it's a kosher box, it has a little handwritten scroll that speaks about the covenant with God 
and has words from the Bible that says, you should take these words and you should put them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, and you should wear them on your forehead and on your arm. And so an observant Jew, when entering a room, will reach up and touch that box and kiss their fingers, kiss the box, every time entering and leaving a room. It's the same practice. Another practice that I do to help me remember that uh, spiritual life is not something that happens at Spirit Rock or at the Zen Center, but something that happens all the time, whenever we're alive. Another practice that I do is walking, just walking. Maybe some of you are like me. You've practiced walking meditation quite a lot over the years. If you practice walking meditation enough, you you have the feeling of the walking meditation in your body. Whether you're actually doing formal walking meditation or not, you can feel it in your body. And then you realize eventually how profound a spiritual practice simply walking actually is. Every time you take a step, the whole earth supports you. This immense and as yet indecipherable force called gravity comes into play and holds you to the earth which is, as we all know, spinning rapidly through space. So by rights, we should all be having a heck of a time trying to hold on. But it's no problem. I mean, isn't that something? The idea that you could be on the spinning ball and you could walk around with no problem is, is an immense miracle. Because the earth loves us, right, and holds us and draws us to her. And every time you take a step, whether you think this or not, you are depending on and trusting the earth's kindness and steadiness. The other thing about walking is that in order to walk, you actually have to violate gravity and fall. That's how you walk. You fall forward. And then you catch yourself. Which is why... It's so hard for infants to learn how to walk. If you ever watch them, you realize it's pretty scary to learn how to walk because you have to fall. And they take a step and they think they're going to fall. Well, that's because they're actually falling every time they take a step. It takes a while to build up that kind of confidence. So we fall every time we take a step. But the earth comes up and meets us and it's okay. We regain our balance. So walking is actually standing and falling and standing and falling and standing and falling. And that's how we go forward. We stand, we fall, we stand, we fall, we walk. So every step we take is this immense thing, you know, in cooperation uh, with the earth. And as you walk along in this way, after a while, you, you feel the rhythm of the walking. And one can walk with a kind of grace and and delicacy and beauty in the walking. And then you can feel your breathing and it becomes part of that rhythm of walking. And the feeling of the body falling and standing on the earth and the breath supporting the body as you move through space is a wonderful practice. How does it not return you each and every time to your true self? So I try to practice that whenever I walk. And most of the time I do. I think I'm better at that one than at thresholds. But I'm I'm getting better at thresholds too. 25 years I ought to be getting a little better. But whenever I walk, whether it's down the street or up the mountain or down the hallway to the bathroom, I try to feel uh, my body in walking's profound rhythm the spiritual connection that is what walking actually is. And there's a million ways, you know, because we forget a million times a day. So we need a million ways to remember. And there are millions of ways. The telephone. 
probably many of you know this one. When the telephone rings, it, can, it jangles all of a sudden, and you can maybe it's disconcerting, or maybe you were waiting for it to ring so you could get out of yourself and whatever you were thinking and have something else happen. And maybe it rings and you weren't expecting it, and maybe you don't know who's calling, or maybe you do know because nowadays the phone tells you, oh, it's Harry's calling. <laughs> but even if you know that it's Harry, you really don't know what Harry's going to say. You might think you know, but you never know. So every time the phone rings, it's calling you to the unknown, to the unexpectable. And any call could be life-changing. How many times has that happened that you've heard about or experienced yourself where you get a call and your whole life is different from that moment on? Any time the phone rings, this is possible. So before you answer the phone, why not take a moment, you know, to say, take a breath. (laughs) Reach out for that phone and say, you know, who knows what my life is going to be from now on. And that's always true, right? Isn't it always true? Not only when the phone rings, but at any moment. You don't know what your life is going to be from now on. You think you do, you know. And maybe you're unhappy about that. I don't like the way my life is now. Why can't it be different? Well, it is different every moment. If only you could remember. So use the phone as a meditation. When you wash your face, why don't you take a moment to see how you're standing in front of the wash basin? And then splash the water on your face, whether it's warm or cold, attentively, tenderly. Why should it be that fingers can feel and that the skin of the face can feel touch? And how beautiful water is on the face. How refreshing. It's amazing, you know. If you're meditating and you're feeling all flummoxed and you go into the bathroom and put some water on your face mindfully, it changes the situation. It's miraculous. Who could ever appreciate the full measure of water's miraculous properties? Who could not be awestruck by the journey that this water has made, you turn on the tap, and this water that's been in the clouds and in the ocean and in the earth, deep in the earth, comes to you in this immense, immense ongoing journey. And when you massage your face with the water, you feel the water's softening features. And when you caress your face with loving kindness, you can imagine that you are preparing a heavenly field for the advent of angels. So a little imagination goes a long way in spiritual practice. And why not? Because the ordinary everyday world is also pretty imaginary. So we've got, what, the telephone, washing your face, walking, walking through doors, we could go on this. We could imagine. There could be actually an endless string of spiritual practices that would take you from when you got up in the morning until the moment you went to bed at night, mindfully laying down on your left side like the Buddha did in practicing parinirvana meditation as you fall asleep. But I won't go on. <laughs> it's enough. And you can invent your own ways to remember who you are throughout the day so that you can constantly be purifying yourself and, 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 and knocking off this sort of crust of dailiness and confusion that comes along with our crazy world moment after moment after moment. We need to do these kinds of practices. We can't just depend on Monday Night at Spirit Rock. It's not enough. It's not going to do it. 
or even the 10-day retreat, or the three-month retreat. Every, every day, every minute. And you do that long enough, and there is no special practice needed. You realize that life in, in this body and mind is already an immense experience, just the way it is. And just to live your life in the spirit of practice, without even calling it practice, is enough. Well, that's enough, I think. Um, Usually we go home at 9.15, right? Is that right? Around 9.15. So... Uh, let's take the rest of the time for uh, discussion, um, whatever you want to say or speak about. So who has a question, a comment, a complaint, a political slogan, what? Yeah. I just have a question about the verses that you recite with each action. Yeah. Are there verses for every action? You know, there's a one of the great Buddhist sutras, uh, a Mahayana sutra called the Avatansaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra, which is this immense sutra. It's about 2,000 pages long. One time I had a class in that sutra, and it lasted for three years. We read the whole sutra. But there's a chapter, a very famous chapter in that sutra, which is nothing but verses. And it, it has a verse for anything you can imagine. It goes on for about 50 pages. It's nothing but one verse after another. Things like, when you're walking down a straight road, you say this verse. When the road curves, you say this, ro- this verse. When you arrive where you're going, you say this. When you leave the next day, you say that, and so forth. You know, All kind of verses. But of course, you can write your own. It doesn't have to be uh, verses you you uh, find in a sutra, you can write your own verses and recite them. And the, the recitation of verses to dedicate and lift up activity is a, an ancient practice in, in Buddhism and also in many other traditions. But I would encourage you to write your own verses. And it would be a great thing if you decided to take one or two things, you know, begin modestly, one or two things that you would like to practice with, and write your own verse. And... and uh, you know, like if you have a verse for washing your face, you could tack it up on your bathroom mirror and recite it every time you wash your face. I think it'd be better to write your own verses. Or just stay in one place. Yeah. Yeah, just stay in one place. <laughs> yeah, other other things to say or ask and bring up? Mm-hmm. I see you over there, yeah. Uh-huh. And one time I woke up with every exit is an entrance. Uh-huh. And at that time, it didn't mean quite as much as it does now because now I'm much older. Uh-huh. I think of an exit. Uh-huh. I think of it being an entrance. But it's actually true wherever you walk into. Of course. Yeah, every exit is an entrance. And every entrance is an exit. Yeah. Yeah. From from the point of view of where you are, it's an exit. From the point of view of where you're going, it's an entrance. Yeah. So that's a good, that's a good one. A good verse. Every exit is an entrance. Or or did you say every entrance was an exit? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> other other things. Yeah. Really just changing their entire environment. Does that have anything to do with the concept of impermanence? And would you say that it's um, pretty much every bodily movement would uh, would fall akin to this, or is it just taking a step from uh, one stage into the next? Can you? He uh, yes. Uh, repeat what he said. He said. Uh, 
I think this is what you said. Uh, when you, I was saying that when you take a step, uh, everything changes. And is this an, exists an example of the concept of impermanence? And does it only refer to taking steps, or is it true of any time there's a movement? Is that what you said? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think I think it is exactly uh, exactly impermanence that makes this so, and it's not just when taking a step, it's any time, any time you move, in any way. Whether it's the mind moving or the body moving, it's all, always like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes? Could, could you talk to some, some methods or, um, for when the mind gets consumed with things or, or anger or um, stuck uh-huh. You mean what uh, meditation you may have to get out of these, or um, uh-huh. you mean in meditation or any time? No, no, I'm just anytime. thinking in normal life because you have mm-hmm. going through the threshold. There must be times when something catches you, uh-huh. Uh-huh. gets your mind uh-huh. too focused on it, and you probably have some uh-huh. neat little. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> He's hoping. He's hoping. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you heard what he said, right? That he, he wonders uh, when the mind is really uh, you know, consumed with something, or anger, he gave the example, or something like that. I, what's my neat little trick that, will, that, that all, ha- all he has to do is follow it and it'll never bother him again? <laughs> yes, wouldn't it be nice? No, I think that, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, um, spiritual practice uh, probably is not a hobby. It probably takes everything we have. Probably. So, uh, so it, it can. It certainly will help you to manage strong mental states, no doubt. But, but it takes cultivation over time. And that's why the kind of stuff that I was talking about is so important. Because what you need to do, you know, there's plenty of momentum in your life, not only you, but all of us. There's plenty of momentum in our lives for anger, confusion, desire, um, self-hatred, uh, shame, greed, You've finished the rest of the list. It could go on for a while. There's plenty of momentum in your life, in your personal life, in the society we live in, that will cooperate to produce those mental states, right? And uh, no small thing will be strong enough to overcome all that. But if you, if you determine that you're going to create a certain amount of momentum in the other direction... You cre- it's as if you create a space in which your mind will dwell. And in that space, then when these mental states arise, then they will appear with a different backdrop. They won't appear so confining and so toxic. And after a while, th- then it's not so hard to work with s- strong uh, afflictive states of mind and not be pushed around by them in the, constantly in the same direction. But it, it just takes cultivation and, and uh, takes meditation practice and regular meditation practice and reflection on the teachings and watching your own mind and paying attention to your mind and having a strong intention for where you're going in practice and so on and so forth. But it, it actually does work. But it isn't a small trick, you know. So, however, um, I think uh, one good trick is... <laughs> Uh, when you when you are having powerful afflictive states of mind, which means states of mind that create suffering in you, simply to know that they're afflictive states of mind, and to try to not get rid of them, because nothing there's nothing afflictive states of mind love better <laughs> than when you try to get rid of them. They eat that for breakfast. 
and that's what makes them strong. You, you, are, you are trying to get them to go away, and, and that makes them really strong. So what you have to do is you have the patience to say, uh, okay, you literally to say to yourself, just like the Master, say to yourself, uh, this is a strong, afflictive state of mind. Strong, afflictive state of mind. And then you have to uh, keep, and then it comes again, and again and again, and you keep, this is oh, it's very strong, very difficult, afflictive state of mind. A lot of suffering in this state of mind. And just keep noting that without trying to make it go away. And that way, little by little, it will, it will really change. It won't make the state of mind go away, but it'll change the way that you relate to it. And that will gradually make it less likely that the state of mind will arise. So this, but this, so this takes a while. But that's, that, is a, that is a technique, a very simple trick that will work. All you have to do is remember to do it. <laughs> right? And, and not be so quickly burned up by the wildfire of your passionate state of mind that you never think of doing that. And if you have regular practice and cultivation and you're, and you're thinking about Dharma all the time, the chances of your remembering are much greater, of course. And you're having the presence of mind and the support to do that are much greater. So yes, practice uh, changes our, our mental state, our, our whole way of being. Um, but it's not a hobby, probably. Maybe somebody has a hobby, I don't know. But Yeah. Okay. Um, I came here tonight uh, particularly because tomorrow is September 11th, the 5th anniversary of uh, the bombing. Yes. And um, I was thinking you know, about what you're saying about everyday practices and how on, at that time, on that day and the several days or maybe a few weeks after that, that everything changed and so many of us... Um, also changed our attitude and our way of being in the world just for a little while. Mm-hmm. You know, we were much kinder and slower and more open-hearted and, and that kind of thing. And it strikes me that as we sit here and think about the everyday practices, it seems kind of harder or like, how could we get there or how could we remember all this? Whereas when that happened, just we all changed like that. Yes. So briefly. Um, and so thinking about tomorrow and, and commemorating the losses that um, happened six years ago and how what you're talking about, I, I'm just trying to make the bridge of how to be conscious tomorrow, how to be mindful tomorrow, how to practice in a, in a particularly um, you know, a, a conscious, mindful way tomorrow because uh-huh. of that anniversary. So I'm, I'm just wondering your, your thoughts on that. Uh-huh. Everybody heard that, right? Yeah. Um, well, I have a personal practice. Uh, I sit in the morning, uh, and, and after sitting, I always uh, recollect the people that I know, and I, and I have always have a running list of people who are uh, ill or have recently died. And I bring them into my practice, and I uh, try to feel their suffering and bring it into my heart as if I was actually eating their suffering um, so that I remember you know, them and everybody else in this world who's suffering. So tomorrow might be a good day for everybody to do that practice, to remember, uh, to, to breathe in the suffering of uh, the victims of that time. And also uh, to try to uh, remember uh, how much fear there is uh, in everyone's heart in an insecure world and how much uh, that fear needs to be healed because uh, aggression doesn't heal it, doesn't, doesn't change it really. It only makes it actually worse. So to try to heal, to try to, first of all, to, to breathe in and heal uh, the grief and the loss of, of that day and every other day when people also die and are ill. And then to breathe in the fear and try to bring healing to the fear that's in your heart and in all of our hearts. 
and, and try to find peace from the fear instead of having the fear drive aggression. And this can be an intentional practice, I would say. The best thing would be to sit for a while first, just without that, and then practice this way for a few moments, and then um, go back to just being with the breath, sitting. It's, I'm sure that all across the country, in different ways, people will have their own personal ways and sometimes public ways of, of marking, that, marking that day. Yeah. Yes? Mm-hmm. That sense of wonder and amazement, using it as a medicine, other substances and power substances as well. Um, I guess to what extent can devices like that be brought on the path and be regarded as part of the Buddha practice? Hmm. Well, you're, I'm afraid you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> I don't really know. Uh, I, I have a vow of non-intoxication, so I don't use substances like that. Um, uh, the one thing that I that I have noticed, which uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but it seems to me from my own limited experience with with friends that I have who are who swear by the use of marijuana as a positive contribution. Uh, that I've noticed, uh, and this is, I'm talking about people who don't use it sacramentally or in special occasions, but frequently. It seems to have the effect, as does alcohol, I guess, only in a different way, of creating a kind of distancing in interpersonal relationships. I've noticed this. Uh, in a way, I mean, alcohol, it's, it, you know, you become a mess, and this becomes increasingly apparent. Uh, but marijuana, uh, it's not so apparent. So I've known people who, who have destroyed you know, one human relationship after another and not made any connection between that and their continuing onward you know, use of marijuana. I have another friend, though, who's, who's a Zen priest, who thinks that there's a great hope for uh, LSD and other kinds of substances on a lot of levels. He's actually involved in a huge amount of research on these things. And I just was visiting him recently, and so he was telling me all about this. I, it was all news to me. And, and he was saying that, that there's great hope, actually, for LSD in the case of things like um, addiction or very serious um, psychological syndromes that other medications and talk therapy doesn't seem to touch Sometimes these kind of psychedelic or whatever you call them, drugs, can actually have a positive impact. And he also thinks, and, and he's a Zen person of many years, Stan, he also thinks that these drugs can uh, be of benefit to give people sort of religious experiences that can then uh, help to lead to, to continual practice after that. So... Um, but the but he he seemed to agree as we talked about this at length. He seemed to agree that the drugs per se, without ongoing cultivation, ethical ethical conduct, and you know a whole range of spiritual practices. Uh, in other words, that he he felt that the drugs could maybe be a jumpstart rather than a path themselves. Of course, we all know that in Native American spirituality, the, the drugs are used as part of a spiritual path, and, but that has a whole you know, uh, context. So, anyway, I don't know. <laughs> I'm suspicious, but I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Probably we're, we're out of time, and I have, to, I have many truly delightful and astounding announcements for you. <laughs> So it's time for the announcements.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.